Matthew 28. So Jesus has died, he's risen again. There's been a panic among those who oppose the gospel, particularly the Jewish leaders and some of the Roman soldiers. uh, And they've sent out a kind of false report. Uh, We know the body's gone, let's pretend it was stolen. There's been this kind of false message that's been sent out. And now Jesus is going to come and instruct his disciples about the true message that needs to go to the ends of the earth. So Matthew 28 and verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, What if you had the experience, you get up in the morning and the day just looks pointless, empty. You wonder what on earth you're meant to do with it. Now, some of you are wishing for days like that. <laughs> I long for a day where I can just get up and think, oh, what shall I do? Uh, your days are totally the opposite. You're woken up in the morning because the first kid is already screaming. And so you know what you're going to be doing from now until the time you shut your eyes. You're going to be looking after children or heading to work or cooking dinners or cleaning the, the floor. Or There is going to be very little time in the day to stop and pause. But, but whether you're the kind of person who, who, who often feels listless and, and aimless, or whether you're the kind of person who, frankly, has just run off their feet and feels like they're spinning plates like those kind of circus clowns. But both groups, and all of us will be somewhere on that spectrum at least, both groups can, at least after a while, fall, I suspect, into the same trap. And that trap is, is just to focus on the immediate here and now, the next thing. And to lose a kind of big picture vision of what we're all about. Uh, this morning at the end of Matthew's Gospel, this series began, well, began in September 2017 when the church began. So the first sermon ever at Christ Church Central was on Matthew 1, verse 1 through whatever it was, 18 or whatever. And finally, six years later, we've got to the end with significant gaps. I want to add if you're new, don't worry, you're not going to get a six-year series in a book. But at this end of the gospel, we're getting that Jesus is charged to the church. Matthew will write nothing else in the New Testament. Children, you might know that Luke's gospel has a part two. Luke part two is called Acts. So Luke will go on to say kind of what happened next, other things that Jesus said and did through the disciples. He'll talk about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But Matthew, this is it. So from Matthew's point of view, all the church needs to hear is contained in these last four or five verses of his gospel. And we're going to look at three alls. It's actually five in the passage, if you can spot them. But there are three alls we're going to structure our time around. And we're going to link one, children, to to three mountains. Do you see that Jesus is on a mountain? The 11 disciples, verse 16, went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Now, we don't know which mountain it is. But remember, he died and rose just outside Jerusalem. And then the, 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 the disciples have been sent up to Galilee in the north, where much of Jesus' ministry took place. And he meets them on a mountain. 
Now, Matthew doesn't waste words. The Holy Spirit, all the more, doesn't waste words. It's significant that he's on a mountain. Mountains have played a big part in Matthew's gospel. And again, I'm not, we don't have time this morning to run through all the mountains that pop up in Matthew's gospel. But almost certainly, being on a mountain is meant to remind us of three great mountains of the Old Testament. And we'll pick those up as we go through. So first, all. Jesus says to you this morning, I have all authority. It's really verse 18. I have all authority. That's, that's what we need to know as a church. If we're going to direct our lives in the same way that the world is going. I have all authority, Jesus says. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth. That, that phrase, in heaven and on earth, it is meant to mean everywhere. Everything that exists. Children, do you remember at the beginning of the Bible? God made the heavens and the earth. And by heavens and earth, he, he just means all the kind of spiritual realm that you can't see and all the physical realm that you can see. Everything was made by God. And here Jesus says, it's all under my authority. This is kingly language. And a big theme of Matthew's gospel is the kingship of Jesus. The whole gospel began, those of you who are around, what, six years ago. And I expect a few more of you who've read Matthew's gospel before. The whole gospel began with this, the book of the genealogy, or the Genesis, literally, of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Right at the beginning, Matthew wants us to know, here is Jesus, who is the descendant of David. Children, you remember who David was? He was the great king of the Old Testament, wasn't he? Here is a royal son who's appeared. And now this royal son says, look, I'm not just king of Israel like David. I'm not just going to have a throne in Jerusalem. But everything that exists, it's under my authority. And in that way, we're reminded of the very first mountain we get in the Bible. Do you know where the first mountain is in the Bible? It's right there on page one or two, I suppose, depending on how your Bible works. It's there in Eden. The Garden of Eden is, is on a mountain. Okay, we're told that later in Ezekiel, and we're told even in Genesis, the rivers run downhill from Eden. So the garden is on a mountain, and God puts in that garden Adam and says to him, one of the first things human beings are told, in fact, Adam specifically is told, is have dominion, rule over the world. God's plan was always to have a king. He puts a king on top of the mountain, on top of the world mountain, Eden in paradise and says rule over the world but do so under me okay, god is the king and adam is meant to be the, the sort of the vice king as it were and you know the story almost straight away adam ruins it and so god sends his own son to become flesh a descendant of adam and a descendant of david and he sends him so that his plan might not be ruined I wonder if there's a strange word or any of the words in verse 18 seem strange to you. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Any of those words strike you as odd? What about the word given? Jesus is God, isn't he? Yes. So surely he has all authority. No one gives God authority. He just has it because he's God. Well, that's true. But Jesus is speaking here as man, as the human king that creation has been waiting for ever since Adam first ruined it on that first mountain. God's plans are never thwarted. It's not as if 
uh, creation was his plan A, Genesis 1 and 2. And then when we messed it up with C, he sort of threw that whole plan out the window and thought, right, I need something new. No, creation is the restoration, the repairing, and even the glorifying, the making even better of that first plan. And so Jesus is that the new Adam, everything is under him. The animals, the birds, the bees, the politicians, the presidents, the prime ministers, the kings and queens, the university lecturers, the school teachers, the nurses, the doctors, the policemen, the lawyers, the judges, the mums, the dads, everybody, the church leaders, everybody is under his authority. And he, unlike Adam, is a, is a faithful king. One of the mountains we saw earlier in Matthew's gospel, uh, back in chapter four, was a mountain that Satan took Jesus to. Let me read you from Matthew four and the temptations of Jesus. Matthew four, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you. Hear the same repeated themes? Mountain, all the kingdoms, all the nations, I will give them to you. If, says Satan, you will fall down and worship me. Have glory now. Don't bother going to the cross, says Satan. Don't bother obeying your father's word. The way to glory is to bow down and worship me. Turn your back on God and trust me. And Jesus says, no, get, get away. And so finally, we have a human king. There is a man at the centre of the universe. This is extraordinary. Children or even adults, you've seen those films where there's like a command centre. Perhaps it's in the USA in the Pentagon or something, the military centre, or the president's in his bunker. Remember those extraordinary films of um, Obama kind of watching the the strike on uh, bin Laden when they captured bin Laden. Um, and they're in that, I mean, who knows quite where they are, but underground, some super secure. It, it must be the most powerful place in the universe, humanly speaking, at least on Earth. The most powerful man, head of the richest, most powerful nation, at the command center, all the military at his disposal. Jesus is saying here, there is a command center to the universe with a human being sat at the controls. That was always God's plan. And it's me, says Jesus. That, of course, is why his authority is higher than anyone else. Because God has given him, as a human king, this authority. And as he's God as well, it's fitting. There's no rival between sort of God and man, because he is the God-man. We're not going to have time to, to look at it much this morning. But when it comes to the baptising, just notice it quickly in verse 19. Do you see you're baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son, that's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit? Two things to notice. First of all, do you see the the Trinity as the church came to call it over time? The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but tri, three, and unity, one. God is one God. You baptize into the name. There's only one God, not names. Matthew hasn't got his grammar wrong, or Jesus hasn't got his grammar wrong. So imagine we, we started a cult, um, and um, uh, Tash and Claire and Colin are going to be the leaders of this cult, okay? And um, to, to come into this cult, I would say you need to be baptised. We're going to pour water on your head. It's a sign that you belong to the three great prophets of Tash, Claire, and Colin. And 
So you need to be baptized into, what would I say, into the names of Tash, Claire, and Colin, because they're three different people. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say baptized into the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Name one name, because there is only one God. And yet that one God exists as three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, you could have a whole sermon on the Trinity. You could have a series on the Trinity. Obviously, there's depths there we can't go to. But if you want one verse, it gives you a kind of little summary. That would not be a bad one. One God, one name, but in three persons, each of whom is fully God. And therefore, do you see Jesus claiming to be divine? Forget the Tash, Claire, Colin cult for a minute. Imagine this morning that we got Theo up and I said, look, we're going to baptise Theo. And go baptise him because of all that God has done for him. And we're going to baptise him into the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and John T. You, well, I hope you'd have been horrified. What right have you got yourself to, 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 to insert yourself with those three? You're not on a par. They are God and you are just a man. When Jesus includes himself in the baptism formula, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he is claiming equality with God. And so again, you have the one who has all authority who is God and man. And into whose name we're meant to be baptised, to whom we're meant to submit. So let me ask you a question. Do, do you realise you live in a kingdom? Do you realise you live in a kingdom? I sometimes, this, this is going to sound wrong, okay? It's the kind of clip that you could clip out and get me in trouble. This is going to sound wrong, but still I'm going to say it. Um, I sometimes wonder if democracy hasn't helped us in this front. I'm not advocating other political systems or any political systems. So there we go, there's my caveat. But we are used to the idea, aren't we, that we choose who's in charge, and no one's in charge unless I say they are. That's how it works. So even this week, just to get myself in more trouble, up in Scotland, um, you might have seen protesting outside when King Charles went to get whatever he gets from Scotland for being king. Um, there, were, there were people outside holding, holding placards, not my king. I'm afraid he is. <laughs> Bad luck. You might not have chosen him. In fact, you definitely didn't choose him. That's how it works. But if you are Scottish, he just is your king. Fair enough, if you're French on a holiday, fine, you can hold the placard, a bit pointless. But, but if you are Scottish, he is your king. The fact that you like it or not is totally irrelevant. The fact that you didn't choose him is totally irrelevant. That's not how kingdoms work. We're very used to thinking that I should only have to listen to those I choose to listen to. That's not how the universe works. God says, this is my king. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And so he doesn't say to the disciples, go and make me Lord everywhere. Go and make me Lord. Rather, he says, I am Lord. Now go and tell people about it. So we need to wake up each morning realizing we're in a kingdom, not a democracy. And therefore, I'm owned. Children, if you, I imagine if you work at Buckingham Palace, I've never been there, but I imagine if you work at Buckingham Palace, you have a particular uniform, and it will have now the king's insignia stitched on it, perhaps a crown and, you know, Charles C, 2 R, some of that, Charles II, King, Rex. And you know when you put on that uniform, you know you belong to someone. 
And so imagine you're the royal butler. Okay, it's not up to you what you do for the day, is it? It's not up for you to go to the palace and say, do you know what? I'm going to have a little swim in the pool. I think I might have a dip in the sauna. I think I might take a lap around the garden with the corgis. No, you are. You belong to King Charles II. And if he wants wine, you go and get him wine. If he wants a cup of tea, you go and get him a cup of tea. We are all owned. <laughs> we belong to Jesus. That The name has been put on us. Let me ask you, are there areas of your life that you are keeping away from the authority of Jesus? You're saying, yeah, I'll, I'll submit here, but not there. There was a, a Frankish king, so a French king from the early Middle Ages called Clovis. And um, his whole tribe came to faith. They were warriors. And apparently this, they, they, they decided to be baptized. And they, the, the way they, they got baptized, Clovis told his men, you, you'll go into a river to be baptized, but you hold your sword up high because I still want to be able to do fighting and killing and smashing of other tribes that's not how it works everything is cleansed everything is claimed by Jesus' Lord so he's the Lord of your academic studies if that's what you're up to and even if the brightest person in your university faculty says something that clashes with what Jesus says they are wrong and Jesus is right not just in a kind of moral way, okay, I've got to do what Jesus says, but he knows more than they do. Maybe it's more personal than that. Jesus is Lord of your relationships, your sex life, your money. He knows better than your heart tells you. Again, we're in cultures, a culture that tells us that really you are Lord and you ought to follow your heart. Do what you feel right is right. And if someone tells you otherwise, they are, well, maybe even abusing you. Some of the language gets very heated. You mustn't stop people being true to themselves. Jesus says nonsense. I'm Lord. You're not lots of little independent lords. The world is not full of eight million, sorry, eight billion kings. There's one king. And the good news is he's good. This is the king who's died and risen again. He's not some sort of horrible dictator who's forcing himself upon us in order to inflict misery on us. This is the king who loves you so much he died for you. So you can trust that his authority is a good authority. All authority. The mountain of Eden. Secondly, I have all authority, says Jesus. Therefore, I'm sending you to all nations. Verse 18 to 19. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Do you see the link? All authority, therefore, go to all nations and make disciples. I haven't just got authority over Jerusalem or Israel. I'm not just the Lord of the Jews or the Lord of the Christians. Certainly Jesus isn't just the Lord of the West or Europe, or Britain. One of the really, I think, exciting things about church these last uh, couple of years in particular is that um, people have been coming along from so many different nations, okay, way more than I've experienced in the past. I've spent the last sort of 15 years in much more kind of monocultural uh, settings. And particularly if, if you come from, from a nation that, that, that the church isn't kind of strong in, it, it could have occurred to you that, 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 that Christianity is a kind of Western thing. Now, to be honest, just to disappoint you, the church in England really isn't doing very well anyway, but still. 
there is nothing limited about Jesus' authority. All nations, Christianity isn't a Western religion. But frankly, at the moment, it's flourishing in the East and the South, far more the North and the West. And so because he has authority, he tells the disciples to go and proclaim that authority. Again, this is where sometimes people say, well, it's so arrogant of Christians to go and tell everybody they need to, to turn to Jesus and trust Jesus. Evangelism, as it's called, heralding the good news, is, is, is innately um, arrogant. Well, first of all, it can't, if it's true... If it's true, then none of that matters. The real question is, is it true? But, but secondly, we're all evangelists for something, aren't we? A few years ago, uh, there was a, a rugby player called Israel Falau, um, who's a Christian. He's a, he was born in Tonga, played in Australia for a long time. One, one of the greatest rugby players of his generation. And he, he tweeted, now he, t- he tweeted um, basically, a, a, to, to be honest, a, a really pretty badly paraphrased um, bit of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says... Um, that those uh, who are in Paul's, in the ESV's language, homosexual offenders, won't go to heaven. And Falau tweeted this, and he didn't put much context, fair enough, but still, he was making the point that same-sex sex is condemned by God. He got kicked out of the Australian rugby team, banned from playing for them uh, ever again. But what was really interesting was the, the reaction. One newspaper article, an, an old British, uh, old English uh, player, now a journalist. Uh, he wrote, no, we shouldn't be so condemning of Falau. Of course, his opinions are abhorrent, terrible. But it's not his fault. He comes from Tonga. And a couple of centuries ago, we, the, the, the arrogant Brits, sent missionaries to Tonga to turn them into Christians. So it's our fault for turning them into these bigots. So we should be sympathetic to him. And instead of condemning him, what we should do is send folk over there to teach them that that's just bigotry. We, we need to repent of our arrogance of telling them to believe this Christianity that we believed 200 years ago, and instead go and educate them that actually it's totally okay what you do with your body. You can do what you like. See the irony? It's amazing, isn't it? It was awful of us, awful of those Christians. It was, you know, it's very easy to repent of someone else's sins, isn't it? Uh, awful of those Christians, you know, my ancestors, to go over and, and, and tell them that Christianity was true. So you can't, bela- you can't blame those poor little Tonkans who clearly have got no minds of their own for believing all that stuff. So now let's go and tell them what we think nowadays, and they have to think that instead. <laughs> We're all evangelists. The most liberal person in your family, office, the most liberal person in this room, you have an ultimate authority. It may not be Jesus, but you have one. And the anger you feel when someone tells you what you ought to believe shows that you very strongly believe that they ought to believe what you believe. We're all at it. The question is, which one's true? Jesus says, go and make disciples. You need to come to me. Again, that's actually good news. Here is a king who wants you in his kingdom. He doesn't just want to drive you away if you haven't been good enough. He invites you to him. This is the crucified king who says, come to me. Find mercy and peace and safety in my kingdom. Before I come with the sword. Well, how do we make these disciples? Two tools. Jesus puts two tools in our hands. Children, can you see what the two tools Jesus gives for the job of disciple making it are? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And verse 20, teaching them. He gives us the word of God, the Bible. And the baptism bowl. 
summarize that with the, the word and the signs, baptism, and the other one is the Lord's Supper that goes with it. Two signs, word and sacrament, as they're, they're, they're traditionally called. These are the two tools that Jesus gives to disciples to go to the nations with word and sacrament, Bible and baptism bowl. So again, let me ask a question. Do, do you think he got it right? Do you think he got it right? Or can you think of a better way of doing it? That the history of the church is littered with denominations and congregations and movements saying to Jesus, mm, yeah, look, maybe in the first century, but but times have moved on, Jesus. We've got a much better way of reaching the nations now. There's always a fad or a fashion. Uh, again, in, in, in my world, the world I was converted in and discipled in, it would be to heavily downplay the sacrament side of things, the baptism and Lord's Supper kind of things. They were seen as a bit suspicious, a bit Roman Catholic, as if the Pope invented them rather than Jesus. And so we, we sort of tried not to, to, to do too much Lord's Supper or talk about it too much. Or if we did, we'd spend all the time explaining what we're not going to do this morning. I'm not going to pour magic water on Theo's head. I'm not going to wash his sins away. This is not, man, it's not special water. It came out of the tap. And so he spent all the time explaining what was not going to happen. And that was great. So what is going to happen? <laughs> Don't know, doesn't matter. We play down sometimes the tools that Jesus gives us. That is foolish. Jesus gave us two tools, then the church should use these two tools. Children, I'm terrible at DIY. My children might know this. I'm terrible at building things. My father in law is brilliant at it, okay, which only makes it worse. So imagine you've been asked, you know, asked to help my father in law, you know, you asked me to build a shed or something. And uh, says, go and get a hammer and a saw. I imagine that's what you need to build a shed. Guessing. And I turn up instead with a fork and a spoon. What's he going to say? I say, you idiot, what are you doing? How do you expect to build a shed with those? Well, similarly, Jesus gives us the Bible and the baptism bowl. Baptize and teach. And that's why our ministry at Christ at Central is meant to be centred around those two things. Word and sacrament we haven't got time to go into the theology of each this morning but you see them as the headline here in the commission of the church and look what we're meant to teach verse 20 teach all that i have commanded you now who's he speaking to he's speaking to the 11 disciples so their job is to go and teach other people what jesus has already commanded them already taught them in other words, not what I will say to you in the future or not what you feel might be relevant to today's culture, but go and teach what I have commanded you, past tense, what I've already said to you. The words of one, one writer, Jesus is interested in them teaching verses, not visions. Verses, not visions. In other words, teach the scriptures, not what you feel God might be saying to you today. Again, the church has often had a problem with ministers or pastors or self-appointed prophets or priests or whatever they might call themselves. Saying things like, the Spirit has led us on to deeper truth since the days of Paul and James and John. Now we know that. Back then they used to think, but now. And Jesus sits in heaven and says, teach what I commanded them. So he says it to us this morning. Christchurch, 
teach what I commanded the 11 disciples. In that sense, the second mountain is Mount Sinai, the other great mountain, or the second of the great mountains of the Old Testament. Remember Mount Sinai? The mountain where God's people gathered and the Ten Commandments were given, the Old Testament, all the laws, and this is how you should live. Jesus is saying, this is how you should live. He has come down on this mountain and says, now, this is how you should live. Obey all that I've commanded you. So again, some questions. How invested are we as a church in church planting? That's what this is about. The first, I don't know how many times I heard this passage taught, it was always taught in the context of, so you individually all need to go out now and do some personal evangelism. Now, that may or may not be true, but the context here is Jesus speaking to the disciples, who are the kind of church leaders of the day, to go and baptise. You baptise people into the church. We don't just all go baptising willy-nilly on our own, do we, at the office? Someone becomes a Christian, we don't cup of water and baptise them. And teaching. In other words, go and plant churches. You may or may not be a great personal evangelist, but you can play a part in this mission going onwards. It is given to the whole team, as it were. So just as not every player on the football team is necessarily going to be banging in goals into the top corner, and yet they're all paying a part, well, so too as a church, we ought to be, out, be about this great commission, this great mission of churches being planted and men, women, and children being one to Jesus, evangelized to Jesus. You might not be the kind of person who can sit on a bus and brilliantly strike up a conversation. Like, I wish we were all, all like that, but we're not, if we're real, realistic. But we're all, this commission is for all of us corporately. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Th- think who Jesus could have sent. He went back to heaven. Who could he have sent? He could have sent Gabriel. The archangel Michael, he could have sent those extraordinary creatures, the seraphim and the cherubim, with their kind of four different faces. Imagine that. Next Leeds University Mission Week. A creature with the face of a bull, an eagle, a man, and I've forgotten what the other one is, turning up at the front. Surely that would be a better plan. Then people would believe. But no, he's sending us, Bill the plumber, Sarah the dentist, Johnny the student, We pray, we look for opportunities, we support one another, we just have an interest, we give towards this goal. How interested are we in church planting? How invested are we in global church planting? Go and make disciples of all nations. It's an organisation called the Joshua Project who estimate that there are 17,000, I'm going to round the figures, 17,000 people groups in the world. Of those, 7,000 are unreached, as in don't have the gospel. 42%. To put it another way, roughly 8 billion people in the world, 3.4 billion unreached. Okay, that, that is something... What's the answer to that problem? It's not Gabriel, it's not the Seraphim, it's not Michael, it's not Billy Graham. It's people like us, churches like us. And we tend to think, well, I'm not going to go to PNG. I'm not going to go to Papua New Guinea. I'm not going to go to whichever country, North Korea. And therefore, this doesn't apply to me. But it does, because we can still be involved. Imagine if, I don't know, 120 people in the room, we were really concerned about the lost. 
of all nations? How would that change how we pray? How would that change how we give? How would that change what we talk about? I say this as much to myself as to to us, but I I just wonder if we've lost some of that outward-looking vision. The nations matter. And so supporting Kip and Dom and Koya, these things matter. They're not a kind of little bit of guilt assuasion. If you're a member here at Christ at Central, you are part of Kip's mission. They're not just token partners we send some cash to. It is our job to support them in prayer. Who else is going to do it? And for some of you, perhaps you do need to go. Perhaps the call for some of us will be to go. There is no other plan. There's no plan B. Some of us will be called. And it's worth asking yourself, particularly many of you young at the beginning of your lives, trying to look towards the future. Could it be you? Could it be that God is calling you to the nations? William Carey, who was a a great missionary uh, out in the East. He said out there his son eventually was made an ambassador, got a high appointment in the government of, of Rangoon. And someone said, oh, you know, Mr. Kerry, you must be delighted at your son's appointment. He said, my son is shriveled from a missionary to an ambassador. <laughs> Slightly brutal parenting, perhaps. <laughs> but it's striking how much he cared about that gospel going out, isn't it? Shriveled from a missionary to an ambassador. All authority, all nations. And just the last minute as we close, I'll be with you all days. I'm with you, verse 20, always. That is literally all all the days they've contracted it in English. Behold, says Jesus, I will be with you. We feel this mission is beyond us, don't we? It is daunting. And partly that's because we haven't seen the risen Jesus. But but Augustine, when he he wrote about this this passage, pointed something out that I found found this really helpful. He, He says, both we and the disciples who were there at the time, both of us can see one thing and can't see the other. One thing with our eyes, the other thing we take on faith. For them, they can see the risen Jesus and they have to take on faith that there will be this global international church. The church doesn't exist. They're on a mountain. There's 11 of them. All nations seems pretty unlikely. We, on the other hand, we can see the global church. It is extraordinary what has happened if you look around the world. But we don't see the risen Lord Jesus. But let the thing you can see strengthen your faith in the one you cannot see. You cannot see Jesus. He will not be physically visible to you the next time you're in the office or talking to a family member or whatever it may be. But he will be with you, he says, always to the end of the age. And so Matthew's gospel finishes where it began. It began with a promise to Joseph that he should call his son Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it ends with God who has become man saying, I will be with my people always. And just look at what those people are like. We skipped over it, but I love this little detail. Who is it that Jesus speaks to? Verse 16, 17. It's the 11 disciples. And verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that bizarrely encouraging? Here are the kings of the church, the princes of the church, the 11. Not unfaithful Judas, the 11. The rocks, the pillars, the ones who have gates in the new creation with their names carved on them. They are on a mountain seeing the resurrected Jesus and they worship and doubt. You worry that you doubt sometimes? Don't be surprised. It's not that doubt is a good thing. Sometimes it's almost seen as doubt is a a good thing to nurture. It shows a healthy scepticism. No, not at all. We don't want to doubt. But don't be surprised. 
The power not comes, comes not from you, but from the Jesus who is with you, the Jesus to whom you are discipled. Go and make disciples. That word comes a couple of times earlier in Matthew's gospel. Who are the ones you're bringing Jesus to? And who is the Jesus who is with you? Matthew 11, same word, but this time taught, translated as taught or teaching rather than disciple. Listen to these words. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There's the disciple word. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Be disciple to the one who is gentle and lowly. He will give you rest for your souls. And you see his kindness and love to you, well, so you go and share that love and announce that kind of lordship to the world around you. You are weak, I know, but he's mighty. An unmissionary church and an unchurchly mission are both, from the standpoint of the gospel, absurdities. So he said, Leslie Newbegin, let's be a missionary church Let's our, let our mission be church-shaped. It is a team game that Jesus sent us out on, and the power is all his. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all authority has been given, Holy Spirit, a giver of life and empower of the church, we pray that you would make us a missionary church. Oh, we're sorry for our lack of zeal, and we praise you that you used worshipping but doubtful disciples. Uh, give us, uh, we pray, a real confidence, Lord Jesus, that you are resurrected, the Lord of all creation, that you are gentle and lowly with it. And we pray that that invitation come to me would echo out from us, in our families, our workplaces, our schools, universities. And would you add to your kingdom, therefore we pray. This we ask in your own name. Amen.